This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. open uh, your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. If it's your first time with us today, we're walking through Paul's letter to the Romans uh, together, and we progress to the third chapter this morning. Uh, Paul has sort of been laying groundwork because in verses 21 and following of chapter 3, we get this beautiful picture of the good news of the gospel. But before we can understand that and really embrace that good news, we need to understand the bad news <laughs> that makes it good news. And so in these early chapters of Romans, what Paul is doing is he is, he is showing our need for a savior by establishing our, our guilt before God. And so that's what we see here in verses 1 through 20, our great need for Christ. And so let's look together um, at Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. I'll ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we look at it together. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds for his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You may be seated. Let's pray together. And Father, we come before a text right now that should humble all of us 
and make us see our great need for the Savior. For we are sinners. In our character, in our conversation, in our conduct, we have all fallen so far short of your glory. We have sinned against you in so many ways. We have sinned against a holy God, a holy, righteous God who hates sin, who must judge sin. We are guilty before you. And so we thank you for the Savior. We thank you that instead of giving us what we deserve, that you gave your son for us. And we pray that you would help us to see today our guilt before you, that we would flee to a savior if anyone here is unsaved. And in a crowd this size, surely there are some. We pray that they would flee to the savior. And for those of us who are in Christ, may we cherish the gospel and share this gospel and that you would show us how good this gospel is how gracious you are speak to us now through your word we pray in Jesus name amen well on valentine's day I checked the news that afternoon just to see what was happening and when it was obvious to me that another mass school shooting had happened. I don't know about you, but I just felt nauseous. I felt just a, almost a physical sickness to my stomach. And of course, after that initial shock and grief, uh, there came a lot of uh, anger in our culture as people were searching for motivation and, and, and causes. But, but among all of those words that were being thrown or around in the search for the cause of this, I heard no one speak the cause that Jesus speaks to. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says there in Mark 7, 21 and following, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The problem, which no one seemed to be speaking about, is sin and evil within the human heart. And the only answer to that problem is the one who saves from sin. And Paul here in these early chapters of Romans is establishing our desperate need for the Savior. And in order to do that, he has to establish our guilt before a holy God. And so what have we seen so far in Romans? In 1, 18 through 32, we saw the Gentiles, guilty. And chapter two, Jews, guilty. And chapter three, one through 20, everybody, guilty. Guilty and in desperate need of a savior. And you see, it's only when we understand our predicament and our peril and our guilt before a holy God that we will flee to a savior. 
And that's what Paul wants us to do here. He is setting things up in verses 1 through 20 for this glorious presentation of the good news of the gospel in verses 21 and following. But, but we will never understand that good news for the good news that it is until we understand the bad news that we see here in the verses that we're going to look at today. So what do we see here in verses 1 through 20? Well, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, we see sort of a Q&A with Paul. Last week we talked about the fact that in every city, Paul, the first thing that he would do was that he would go into the synagogues and he would talk to his own people, his fellow Jews, and so he would dialogue with them. He would do Q&A with them. And we kind of get a flavor of those Q&A sessions here in verses one through eight. One question that he was often asked in that setting was, well, hey, what advantage is there to being a Jew? In other words, they would ask him, hey, look, you're, you're preaching this gospel and, 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 and uncircumcised Gentiles are being accepted into the church and so forth. What advantage is there to even being a Jew? And Paul is gonna answer that, verses one and two. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So when his fellow Jews would ask him that question, what advantage is there to being a Jew? He would say, well, to start with, we have the Bible. (laughs) We have the Old Testament. And that is a massive spiritual privilege. But then he would have to turn it around. And he would say, but what are you doing with your privileges? We need to answer that question as well. I mean, many of you, you know, kids, students, most of you are here today because you're being raised up in a Christian family. You've got parents who love God, most of you. That's a, a massive, a huge spiritual privilege. What are you doing with your privilege? Do you think that you're going to get in heaven because you were born into a Christian family, being born into a Christian family doesn't any more make you a Christian than being born in a garage makes you a car. You must repent and trust in Christ and that relationship with Christ has to be real for you. Another question that Paul would be asked in the synagogues was, does Jewish unfaithfulness cancel out God's Faithful, uh, God's, God's faithfulness, this Jewish unfaithfulness cancel out God's faithfulness. Verses three and four. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By, by no means. Let God be true though every one were a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So another question in, in, in the synagogue for Paul would, would be, look, you're... You're telling us, as your fellow Jews, you know, that we too need to repent, uh, just like Gentiles, and yet, you know, we're God's chosen people. Uh, Does this somehow uh, cancel out God's promises and God's faithfulness to his people? And Paul would say, oh, quite to the contrary. The fact that, that we too must repent and that God will judge us if we don't is evidence of his faithfulness because it shows God's righteousness and his holiness. You know, people in our culture, 
We want to pick and choose the attributes of God. You know, we want to go through a line, cafeteria style, and say, well, you know what? I'll pick God's love, but not his wrath. You can't do that. The theologian Richard Niebuhr once said that, you know, modern, uh, modern uh, Americans and sort of especially modern liberal theology, uh, they, we, we want to we think of ourselves as people without sin, worshiping a, a God without wrath, coming into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. It's not going to happen. You, you can't even understand the cross without understanding the holiness and the judgment and the wrath of God. A third question that would come up in the synagogues would be sort of a, a snide one, and it would be something like this. Paul, according to your gospel, aren't people actually serving God by sinning? Now, of course, this wasn't really a, a, an authentic question. It was really an accusation that was made, but we know it was made. And he alludes to it at other places in Romans, for instance, chapter six and verses one and two. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, in other words, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans six and verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, may it never be. And then we see this again here in chapter three and verse eight. And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. In other words, Paul is saying here, anyone who would make the accusation that the gospel of Jesus Christ somehow encourages sin is clearly under condemnation because they don't even understand the gospel. Because as we saw last week, the gospel, far from encouraging sin, the gospel promotes holiness. It is only through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit that we receive when we receive Christ that we are able to obey God from the heart. And so, far from promoting sin or being you know, anti-God's law as some of Paul's critics charged the gospel with, it's, it's actually only through the gospel that we can truly obey the law of God from our heart and love God and love others from the heart for the first time. And so we see in verses one through eight sort of this, this Q and A with Paul and then, in verses 9 through 20, we are in the courtroom with Paul. And let me tell you, if you were a defendant, Paul is the prosecutor, you would not want to face. Um, because he is going to make here an accusation, and then present evidence, and then reach a verdict. And of course, it's not Paul's accusation, or evidence, or verdict, it's, it's, it's God's. But Paul is, Paul is presenting it here. First of all, in verse nine, we see the accusation. Verse nine, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and Greeks here is just another word for Gentiles. So that's everybody, it's Jews and then everybody else, okay? In other words, the entire human race, every human being, 
all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And the term here, under sin, presents, it's like sin is like this hostile power that is locking us up, that is enslaving us. It's so ironic that people in our culture would think as, of sin as somehow associated with freedom. It's slavery. The only freedom is, is through Jesus. Sin locks us up. It, it imprisons us. It enslaves us. And it is universal here. It's Jews. It's Gentiles. It's all of us. All of us are under, are under sin. And then, in verses 10 through uh, 18, what Paul does is he presents a mountain of evidence to support that accusation. Verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. And then in case we didn't get that, no, not one. <laughs> now, Paul is not denying God's common grace. You know, he's not denying that some people, that people can do some good things just because we're created in the image of God. But what he's saying here is that our righteousness compared to the righteousness of a holy God is so stained by sin. I had a, a, a professor one time in seminary who had been a missionary in Japan. They had a little dog, little white dog. They thought nothing could be whiter than our dog. And one day they took the dog up on top of a mountain and it began to snow and their white dog began to frolic in this, in this new fallen snow. Suddenly the dog didn't look white anymore. It looked stained, it looked dingy. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags, which is why as we sung earlier in that song, The Solid Rocks, why we need to be dressed in Christ's righteousness that we can stand before the throne of God. Verse 11, no one understands. It's remarkable how even people who are, are, are very intellectual can be so clueless about spiritual things. But the reason for that is because apart from the Spirit of God opening our eyes, we can't perceive spiritual things. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You say, wait a second, I, I know some seekers. Well, just because people are, are, are seeking sort of religious things or spiritual things does not mean necessarily that they're seeking God. Sometimes seeking religious things can actually be part of our running away from God. But there are some people who are genuinely seeking God. But let me tell you why. It's because God was first seeking them. It's so cool to hear stories about what's happening around the world, in particular with Muslim people in regard to dreams. I wanna tell you a couple of cool stories from your workers, people that you support with your tithes and offerings. One worker tells about his friend Ahmed, dear friend, as committed a Muslim as he had ever met, but they established this great friendship with one another in this country. And this worker had often shared the gospel with Ahmed. 
And Ahmed would, would listen politely, but he would say, friend, you know, you, you honor the faith of your parents and you're a Christian and I honor the faith of mine and I'm a Muslim and, and it's, that's the way it's always going to be. About a week before he was due to come back to the States, this worker met with Ahmed and he said, for 15 minutes I poured out my heart and I unpacked the gospel for him just as, as clearly as I possibly could. And Ahmed just sat there and he listened politely, but no response, just like always. The day that he was to fly back to the States, who knocks on his door? It's Ahmed. And Ahmed says to this worker, he said, last week, when you shared with me, I listened like I always did, but there was nothing and then I had a dream. And in my dream, I, I saw like the, the straight and narrow way to heaven. I saw the path and you were on that path. And then you got to the, the, the gates of heaven and someone from inside called, your, called you by name and the gates swung open and you walked through and I was heartbroken because I couldn't be with you. But then the gate suddenly opened back up and you came back out to me and you were reaching out your hand and you were beckoning me to come. He said, can you, can you tell me what you think my dream means? <laughs> this brother, his, his worker said, you know, I was raised in a Baptist church. We didn't talk much about dreams in Sunday school, but suddenly I think I had the dream of gift interpretation. I could tell him what it meant. And there's Mahmood. Mahmoud called another of your workers that we support with our tithes and offerings. Mahmoud calls, he, he, this worker had never met him. They had a mutual friend. Mahmoud knew that this person was a follower of Jesus. And he asked him if he could meet with him. And they sat down and Mahmoud began to tell this worker about his dreams, that he was troubled by his dreams, that he had gone to bed recently and he had this dream that he was in the middle of this endless field, just an open field from horizon to horizon. And he was, it just seemed to epitomize the vast emptiness of his life. And he just was wandering in this open field that led to nowhere and, 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 and just feeling utterly lost and empty. And then in his dream, a voice called him by name, Mahmud. And he turned around and he said, there was this man shining, shining like the sun. His face was so bright that you, you couldn't even see his face. But he reached into the sash of his robe and he pulled out a New Testament. And he held it out to me and he said, Mahmud, this will get you out of this field. He said, I never read anything Christian. And I, I refused to take it. And I woke up. And the next night, I went to sleep and once again, I was in this field. And once again, the shining man appeared to me and once again, I refused to take the New Testament. The third night, I went to sleep and there he was, there I was in the field. And there was this shining man and speaking my name and saying to me with love and holding out the New Testament and saying, Mahmud, this and only this will get you out of this field. And he said with trembling hands, I took it and he says to this worker, can you tell me what the message is? 
in the New Testament. The worker says, yeah, I think I can do that. Ahmed and Mahmoud are both our, our brothers now. They were seeking God because God was first seeking them. That's the way it works. On our own, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. We've gone our own way. The problem with that is that our way is a highway and the only exit is Martell. Together, they have become worthless. Just people wasting their lives. Just like the parable of the rich fool that Jesus tells where, where the guy, you know, he makes it big. And what does he do with all the money that God has blessed him with? He says, oh, I'm just gonna build bigger barns because it's all about me. And then I'm gonna prop my feet up and I'm gonna say, hey, I'm gonna eat, drink, and be merry. I've got it made. And then he keels over and dies. And Jesus says, he gained the whole world, but he lost his soul. Wasted lives. Together they have become worthless. That's our, 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 our character. And then he moves from our, our character to our conversation in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. Just imagine a grave with decaying, rotting flesh inside. And we open our mouth and there's that kind of halitosis because there's rottenness within. What kind of rottenness do we use our, our mouths for? It says they use their tongues to deceive, to tell lies. The venom of asps, which is like poisonous snakes, is under their lips. We, we use our lips to, 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 to slander and to gossip and to, to put down and to tear, tear up. We use our mouths for all kinds of vulgarity. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He moves from our character to our conversation, to our conduct. In verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Blood on the floor of high school classrooms and hallways. Blood on the ground from terrorist bombs. Blood on the floors of the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Blood. On the streets of Chicago, blood, blood, blood. Dostoevsky says in the Brothers Karamazov, people talk sometimes of a bestial cruelty, but that's a great injustice and insult to the beast. A beast can never be so cruel as a man. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery. You know, when we analyze sin and where sin leads to in the cold light of day, it never makes sense. But that's part of its very nature. Ravi Zacharias says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Verse 17, in the way of peace they have not known, because sin leads to strife, Internal strife, relational strife, because we're at enmity with the one who made us. And where does it all lead? Where does it lead ultimately? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And when that happens, all bets are off. Everything is permissible. 
Now this is the evidence, okay? It's there in our character. It's there in our conversation. It's there in our conduct. This is our guilt before a holy God, which is where he's leading. The third thing we see here in verses 19 and 20 is the verdict, the verdict. So let's look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Now, Paul here, when he says every mouth may be stopped, is probably reflecting on a passage in Job. Job chapter 40 and verse four. You know, in the book of Job, it's full of speeches, right? Lots of words. Wordy, wordy human beings who think we have all the answers. Talk, 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 talk. All kinds of human speeches in Job. And then what happens? God speaks. And then what happens? Job 40 and verse four. Job says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. In this book with so many speeches, when God speaks, people are speechless, utterly speechless. Paul says, that's, that's what the law of God does. It zips us up. It shuts us up. You know, all of, all of, our, all of our talking, all of our boasting, all of our pride and self-righteousness, it shuts us up because the law nails us. It exposes us for who we are. It shuts our mouths. It shows us our accountability before God. Verse 19, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Sometimes I get in conversations with people that don't know what I do. (laughs) And those conversations uh, can be interesting because if they ask me what I do, then a lot of times they'll apologize for something that they just said, like a few minutes before. And that's why I'm always like, hey, listen, you're not accountable to me. I'm the least of your worries. The Bible says that that all of us, me, you, and everybody, we're accountable to a holy God. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now listen, this verse 20 is key because it tells us what the purpose of the law is and what the purpose of the law is not. The purpose of the law is not to save us. That was never its purpose. There were people in the synagogues, particularly, who were relying on the law to save them. But Paul is saying here, that was never God's purpose in giving us the law. It it could never make us right with God. What it could do 
was give us knowledge of sin. It could show us our sin so that we'll see our need for a savior. This is what the law does. The law, Paul says, gives us knowledge of sin. It nails us, it exposes us. You know, we live in a culture today, we're so into pictures because we can just whip out our phone and take one. So there's pictures everywhere. You know, and you look at social media, you see pictures, and nobody puts their worst picture on social media, right? We want everybody, if you look at social media, you think everybody's happy, everybody lives a wonderful life, you know, everybody looks their best. Pictures show us who we are on the outside, but the law of God exposes who we are on the inside. And it strips us naked. So that, so that we will flee to a savior who can clothe us in his righteousness. And that's what we're gonna get to next week in verses 21 and following. Let's take a look at it, just a preview of what's coming. But now, those are two of the sweetest words in the Bible. After all this bad news in verses 1 through 20, verse 21 leads off, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, in verses one through 20, we see our great need for Christ. But next week in verses 21 and following, we're gonna see the great Christ we need. We're gonna see the one who can clothe us in robes of righteousness because he was willing to be stripped of his robes and crucified on a cross. We see in Jesus, the one who never turned aside, whose character, whose conversation, whose conduct was perfectly righteous. We see in Jesus, the one who spoke nothing but words of life. And we see in Jesus, the one who, instead of shedding blood, shed his blood for us. In verses one through 20, we see that we are far worse than we ever imagined. In verses 21 and following, we see that we are more loved and more accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you. We thank you for loving sinners like us. Lord, this is a, this is a humbling passage. It's a passage that, that really exposes us, exposes our need, our need for Jesus. We thank you that instead of giving us what we deserve, 
that you gave your son for us. We thank you that through Christ that we can be clothed in his robes of perfect righteousness, that we can stand before you accepted and adopted by a holy, righteous God because of the work of Christ. It's all about him. As we reflect before the Lord today, do you know him? Do you know the Savior? Turn to him. Call out to him right now. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call to Jesus right now, friend. He has proven his love for you by shedding his blood for you on the cross. He is risen from the dead. He is a living king, not a dead one. And the door of his heart is open to you. Turn, repent. You've been running from God. Start running toward him. Trust, trust in what Jesus has done. Place all your confidence in the finished work of Christ for you that his blood was shed so that you could be saved, that he was raised from the dead. Receive him, welcome him into your life today. God has placed you in this room right now for a reason, don't turn away. Turn to Jesus, trust him. If you know Christ, rejoice in this gospel, live in this gospel, share this gospel this glorious good news with people around you. You have words of life. How can you hoard that? How can you keep that to yourself when people are dying without the Savior all around you? Make this a time of commitment to, to, to share the good news of this gospel. Some of you here, God speaking to you about being a part of a gospel church as we, as we seek to serve Christ together and learn together, love one another, and build one another up. We want to invite you to come. Say, I want to be a part of, of this family, and we want to welcome you. We want to celebrate with you. So, Father, we give you this time of invitation today. Lord, would you work in hearts? You know the needs in our lives. You know the commitments that we need to make. And by your spirit, would you deal with our hearts and lives right now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.